I greet you all in the name of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You are listening to Let's Be Saints with Luke Doyle, brought to you by Catholic Radio Network, a program to inspire you as you choose the path to become the saint you were called to be. So as Father said, my name is Luke Doyle. I'm a native son of Topeka. I was getting stressed out last week. We were going to have some snow and ice, and I was praying in preparation for this talk, this series of talks, and I read the Gospel from Mass last Sunday. And if you remember it from Mass last Sunday, the Gospel told us that a prophet is not welcome in his native place. (laughs) And I attended first grade here at Christ the King. (laughs) It's been a while since I've done something here, but it's good to be back with everybody. Apparently the Lord has a sense of humor because he told me that on Sunday last week. And then Wednesday last week, I went to read the gospel in preparation for this talk. And it said the same thing. (laughs) So the holy smokes, mom, you got to get me out of this somehow. So I asked Our Lady of the Snows, cancel the talk, move it to next week. And now you know how holy I am. So this series is going to be focused on discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple after Jesus's heart? And I know that there are lots of people here who learn lots of different ways. So some people learn through doing, some people learn through hearing, some people learn through seeing. So I'm going to give you a a couple different styles of presentation over the course of these next couple weeks. So if my style tonight doesn't do it for you, please come back. If it does do it for you, please come back anyways. So sometimes I'll wander around and I'll force the audience to participate, but I thought we'll start small tonight. So the goal for our class tonight is going to be to focus on the gospel message. What is it that we're all about? I don't know about you, but a lot of times I'm not very good at remembering who I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so it's always a great idea to every once in a while to hit pause and to restate the vision. And so that's our big game plan for class tonight is going to be to restate the vision. So we're going to restate the vision of who we are as Christians, what it is to be a Christian. So let's go ahead and we'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we ask this evening, through the intercession of St. Paul, that each and every one of us would be overwhelmed by the gospel. That we would understand more fully what it is that Jesus has accomplished for us, so that we might surrender ourselves ever more fully to you through him, through the power of your Spirit and be sent forth from this place with the eagerness to tell others who are stuck in the darkness and the emptiness that is life apart from you, the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. All this we ask through Christ our Lord, through the intercession of the Virgin Mother, the Mother and Queen of Disciples, as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I would like to share with you tonight in 50-ish minutes what can sometimes take months or years. So everybody buckle up. (laughs) I become increasingly convinced that if we get this right, 
then not only does the Lord transform our lives, but then we have a tool in our hands to use in countless other situations. This message tonight is for all of us. As Christians and evangelizers, we should be striving to share the kerygma in almost every conversation. This is something that I do. Every time I get in a conversation with people, I try to offer this. Lots of times my students will come to me for lots of different reasons to talk. So I teach theology at St. James Academy in Lenexa. I teach theology at a parish in Kansas City. I teach theology via the radio. I have no friends because all I do is teach theology. So a lot of times people want to come and talk to me. And they want to talk to me about different situations, different things that are going on in their lives. And a lot of times, oftentimes, I'll first say, before I answer that, before we can talk about that, can I just share with you how I see the world? Can I share with you my scope through which I see reality? We should be able to do this in five minutes. And if we really knew it, we should be able to like do this with the very course of our lives, with how we live our lives, this gospel message. Tonight, hopefully, we'll be able to get through the gist of it in 50-ish minutes. When I share this message with people and God uses me in the right way at the right time to share this message with people, the response almost every time is tears. And that's what's supposed to happen. We're going to see that that is exactly what Pope John Paul II used to describe the proclamation of the kerygma. So we're going to begin here because this is where I know how to begin best. If we were going to reflect on these pictures that are posted up here, and I was going to ask you the question, what are they doing there? And I gave you a quiz. Did you know you are going to get a quiz tonight? You had four options. So we're going to look up here. Option A, they heard that the coffee in France was top-notch. <laughs> Nobody circles that, right? All right, we'll keep thinking about this. Option B, what are they doing there? They heard the beaches at Normandy were awesome, so they're on their bucket list. No, we're still waiting for a better answer. Option three, maybe they heard that the Louvre is supposed to be spectacular. No, that doesn't do it for us either. Option four, why are they here? Duh, they're here to fight. They are here to fight. Everybody picks that, right? It's obvious when we look at our troops storming the beaches at Normandy. They're here to fight. Well, here's the problem. A lot of times we look at that, and I ask the question, why is he there? And I don't think Christians have a very consistent answer. I want to try to help us understand a way to think about that tonight. So my hope this evening is that I can share with all of you what has really transformed my life. I love our faith. I love the way that our faith continues to grow. In the last couple years, I've been striving to follow Jesus for a while now in my life. Sometimes it gets me somewhere. And it's only been in the last couple years of, of my own life that I feel like the Lord has really taught me more about the kerygma more than I've ever known in my life. So I want to share with you a bit of what the Lord has done in my life tonight and over the course of this series. And then hopefully this can be really providential and helpful 
in the days in which we are living. Why? Why do we need this message particularly now for the time in which we are living? Because the situation that you and I find ourselves and our church in right now, guys, this situation is unprecedented. We are living through a Reformation moment. What is happening in the church in this country right now is cataclysmic. You and I know because this is kind of what we do, right? We come to these kinds of talks. We're engaged with people. We talk to the people that we work with. We hang out with our friends. There are a lot of people right now that are angry at the church. A lot of people that are frustrated. People are confused. They feel helpless. They're sad. They're looking for grounding. A lot of times we don't really know where to look. And so hopefully what we're doing right now will give us a tool to be able to share with other people. There's an American archbishop who said recently, not too long ago, that if it wasn't clear before, it certainly is clear now. We have nothing, and I do mean we have nothing to offer anybody in this church except Jesus and him crucified. That's the gospel. So the goals this evening for us are going to be pretty simple. I want to proclaim the gospel message to you. And in doing that, I want to hear it myself. I want to try to equip you with perhaps some new ways to share the gospel. And then hopefully I want to be able to remind us, I really hope that we can all leave here today upon reflecting on this message and whatever it is that the Holy Spirit places in our hearts tonight. I want us to leave here with hope. You and I have reasons for hope because of what it is that Jesus has accomplished for us. And we should be filled with great confidence in him. So I want to begin here because this passage is everything for me. You're going to see I have a special love for St. Paul. This passage is everything for me. St. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the word that Paul uses, this word for power, this is the Greek word from which we get the word for dynamite. Can you believe it? It's a uh, Wednesday night, I'm teaching Greek. I'm sorry, everybody. Okay, dynamos. This is a word from which we get the word dynamite. In other words, this news that St. Paul wants to tell us about, this is not just news. This is explosive news. The best image for me, and we're going to go back to D-Day several times over the course of this talk tonight. The best image for me in translating or sharing this power of the gospel would be, imagine that you and I lived in France in the year 1944. We woke up on June 7th, 1944, and the paper was delivered. And we read, hmm, the Allies land at Normandy. Hmm. Cool. Hey, what's the weather going to be today? Who's playing tomorrow? Would that have happened? No. <laughs> Guys, the Allies coming ashore at Normandy, that wasn't just news. If you were alive in 1944 in France, that was life-changing news. 
The gospel is infinitely more so life-changing news. We just haven't often heard it presented this way. So tonight the goal is to talk about the kerygma. And kerygma is another Greek word. Sorry, Father, I'm already teaching two Greek words. Expectations are high for your class. Kerygma is a Greek word that literally means proclamation. Here's how Pope St. John Paul II described it. The kerygma is the initial ardent proclamation by which a person is one day overwhelmed and is brought to the decision to entrust himself to Jesus Christ by faith. Hold on to that word for a moment. Overwhelmed. I invite you to ask yourself, have you in fact been overwhelmed by what it is that the Father has accomplished for you through His Son? For those of us who often share the message of Jesus, I'm talking to myself, maybe a few other people in this room, are people overwhelmed by the gospel that we live and which we share? For those of us that teach, those of us that counsel, those of us that comfort, that accompany both children and adults, is that the effect that we have on people? The kerygma, guys, isn't just things to know. This is the goal. The kerygma is supposed to move us. It's supposed to break our hearts as we reflect on what it is that God has done for us. And then it's not just supposed to convert us, it's supposed to drive us out of our lukewarm indifference to Jesus, eager and willing to share this explosive message with others with the conviction that there is no hope for anyone in anything other than in Jesus. I invite you to think about that. Have you been overwhelmed at what it is the Father has accomplished for you through His Son? So what is the kerygma? All right, we know this. Hopefully, anyways, I bet most of us here tonight, we know the basic gospel message I'd like to reflect on it real quick with you guys. All right, so it's four parts. The first part is the goodness of creation, culminating in the human person, made in the image and likeness of God. The second part is sin and its consequences. The third part is God's response to sin, and then our response to what God has done. Perhaps if we wanted to, we could simplify this to creation, the fall, and redemption. There's a lot of ways that we could think about this, and I really want to zero our attention in tonight on the second and the third parts. I'll touch briefly on the first part, but I want to concentrate with everybody tonight on the second and the third part of this gospel message. Because honestly, I don't think that we get this. I know, honestly speaking, even a couple years ago that I didn't grasp the way that I feel like Jesus has enabled me to grasp the power of this message now. In my experience in talking to a lot of people these days and in sharing the gospel message with others is a lot of times we minimize sin and its consequences. And if we do that, we don't fully grasp the power of what it is that God has done for us, God's response to our sin. For each of these parts of the gospel that we're going to walk through tonight, 
We're going to take a page out of the book of uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola. Sorry, I studied under the Jesuits a little bit, so we're going to study under him a little bit tonight. St. Ignatius would always encourage us that when we go to pray, because that's the point of what we're doing tonight. This is not stuff to know. This is stuff to convert our hearts. This is stuff to take us into prayer. I'm going to lay out some thoughts for us, but I hope that when we pray, that I invite you, please go back and pray with what I bring to you tonight. And when we go back and pray with this and reflect on each of these three stages of the gospel message, we can forget the fourth one for tonight because that's our response. We're going to talk about that in future weeks. St. Ignatius would say that we should ask God for a specific grace. As we go back and meditate on this, we should ask God for specific graces in what it is in light that we are reflecting on. So as I meditate on creation, we want to pray, fill me, Lord, with, I would suggest, wonder and with trust. As I reflect upon sin and its consequences in my life, Lord Jesus, give me, and this grace is probably going to sound really weird for some of us, give me the grace of despair. And as I reflect on what it is that you, Lord Jesus, have done in response to sin, give me unshakable confidence. So let's look at part one. We'll do this part quick. There's a lot we could do with each of these, but I want to try and really hammer home uh, the second and third parts of the gospel message tonight. So we want to talk about the goodness of creation and the grace that we want to ask for here is wonder and trust. Personally, I think if you get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right, then you're going to get the whole story of salvation right. And if you get those three chapters wrong, you're going to miss everything. And Genesis causes confusion for a lot of people, especially the first 11 chapters of it, because we don't really know how to read it. A teacher that I had one time when I was studying theology in Rome, he would always encourage us and he would say, guys, you want to understand Genesis like it's inspired poetry. If you're a 21-year-old guy who's learning theology and you hear inspired poetry, I have no idea what you mean by that. What do you do with that? Sorry. So what do we mean when we say that Genesis is inspired poetry? It speaks truth, but it's not literally true. The stories of creation are twofold. There's one in Genesis 1. There's one in Genesis 2. Believe it or not, they're different. <laughs> it's almost like God is trying to tell us, hey, don't read this literally. <laughs> Sometimes we do. <laughs> so Genesis is not a science book. It's not trying to tell us how things happen. It's trying to reveal to us why these things happen. A question that we might use to introduce this part of the kerygma would be something like this. Why is there something rather than nothing? The answer to that is really simple. Because there's one God and he's good. And everything that he made, he created out of love. He doesn't need anything. He creates effortlessly. And the highlight of Everything that God has made is the human person who is made in his image and his likeness and exists as male and female, absolutely equal in dignity, but very different. That's how God intended it. 
So it's helpful to know, despite perhaps what some of us maybe learned in college, especially if we took a class in like comparative religions or, or something uh, like that, there is nothing like these creation stories that are found really in any other ancient text. There's nothing even close. If you've heard that lie, please name it as a lie. Get it out of your life. All the other creation myths, all the other ancient stories of creation, they're hypersexual. And there are many gods that are present in them, and none of those gods are really any good. Actually, they're a lot like us. <laughs> they're at war with each other. They're greedy. They're lustful. They, they want power and control. They're violent. They make man out to be a slave. Man has no dignity. He has no purpose. In the other ancient texts of creation, woman is seen as utterly inferior. She has one purpose, children. So there's no real point to life. In a worldview that's like this, guys, where we come from nowhere, we're going nowhere, what rules is despair. When despair rules, we try to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Sound a lot like our world right now? When the creator is eclipsed, the creature loses his or her dignity. As more and more in our world today, as God is pushed to the side, we lose sight of who we are and what we're made for, why we're here, where we're going, or even how to get there. So Genesis reveals these things to us. Now, we know these things, probably most of us, but I want to zero in on one passage that for me recently has been incredibly helpful in helping me grow in understanding of who God is and the goodness that is present in his creation. So Genesis tells us, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And then it's almost like an afterthought. I hope you see this. Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> he made the stars, too. <laughs> forgot to mention that. <laughs> he made the stars. How many stars? There are roughly, according to NASA, 100 billion stars in our galaxy. There are roughly 100 billion galaxies in the universe, each with 100 billion stars in them. The universe is 46 billion light years across. That's 46 billion times 5.88 trillion miles across. Oh yeah, you made the stars too. Forgot about that. <laughs> All right, so how big is that? You're talking to a philosophy major here. I don't do math. <laughs> how big is that? I asked somebody, I had this guy that told me one time, he said, let me give you an image to help you understand how big the universe is. He said, picture a sandcastle where every grain of sand is a star. How big would that castle be? Five miles long, five miles wide, five miles high. Some of us might need to go out and drive that, maybe with our heads out the window. <laughs> We're going to look like crazy Catholics doing that. There's nothing new. And just try to picture this, oh my, this is massive. 
Every grain of sand is a star. This is a massive universe. That's one way to think of this. Okay, here's another. Here's the earth. We know this place. Hopefully it looks familiar. You ever get a postcard with this on it? It says, wish you were here. (laughs) All right, so the earth. You can fit 960,000 earths into this ball that we call the sun. That's our sun. And the sun is a small star. The largest star, at least what I found when I researched it uh, last year, two years ago, uh, is known in Latin. So I've already taught Greek. Here we go. I'm going to teach you some Latin. This star is called Canis Majoris, which translated means the big dog star. I don't know about you. That's a pretty awesome name for a star. (laughs) This is a freaking huge star. The big dog. You know how many Earths can fit inside the big dog star? 960,000 Earths can fit in the sun. You can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside of that star. Philosophy major again, remember? I don't do math, so we got to explain this. If you started counting seconds, right now in this moment, you started counting seconds, and you ended when you hit a million seconds, how long would it take? 12 days. It takes 12 days. You start counting from now to a billion, I'll see you in 31 years. You start counting now until a trillion, I would see you in 31,000 years. You were to count from now until you reached one, one quadrillion, I'll be seeing you in 31 million years you can fit seven quadrillion Earths into that star. Why is that important, Luke? Who cares? Because the one that made that, the one that made the universe, that's 46 billion light years across, that's 46 billion times 5.88 trillion miles across. The one who made all of that His eyes are focused on you. Your life right now is in his hands. So whatever it is that's going on in your world, relax. He's got this. He's not nervous. We prayed at the beginning of this talk. We pray a lot. And oftentimes when we pray, we have this image of God in our minds or our hearts. Guys, whatever that image is, it's wrong. God is massive beyond comprehension. And out of everything that he has ever made, what he loves the most is you. That begs the question, what in the heck happened? If God is good, which he is, in everything that he makes, he makes out of love, Why is everything so obviously messed up? So this will take us to part two. What in the world happened are sin and its consequences. My experience, at least teaching teenage knuckleheads and adults, (laughs) is that we don't get this right. I honestly don't think we spend enough time on what I would call the bad news. The bad news of sin. And if you don't get the bad news, remember, then the gospel is just news. 
But the bad news, guys, the bad news is horrific. It's worse than your worst nightmare. The bad news should leave us utterly despairing if we really get it. So let's try to get a little bit more of this bad news. Now to understand the bad news, we have to understand our enemy. So we want to look at the enemy tonight. We want to look at his reason for rebelling, his strategy, his goal for your life and mine, and then the consequences of sin. So what is his identity? A lot of people, even Catholics, <laughs> we live with like this Marvel Comics version of the universe. <laughs> There's a good God and a bad God. <laughs> They're kind of like duking it out like, oh man, I hope the good God wins. <laughs> There's just one God, there's just one God, and he's good. And everything that he made is a creature. That includes Lucifer. Lucifer was an angel. He was created good. Like everything God made. But Lucifer rebelled. You know the scriptural reason for the rebellion of the enemy? It's not pride. It's envy. Wisdom 2.24 says, Through the envy of the devil, death entered the world. And those who are in his possession experience it. Guys, this message is essential to get. Who the heck would an angel be envious of? It ain't God. It's us. You and me. The enemy sees when he's still an angel, and the other angels see this too, God's plan. God's plan for everything. That includes God's plan for the human person to be divinized, to become just like him. And this so incenses the devil, he's so utterly scandalized by it that he rebels and he goes to war. And now when Satan goes to war, the enemy can't touch God, right? He knows he steps in the ring against God. He's going to lose. He knows that he's only a creature. So he goes to war against the creature that God loves the most. Who's that? That's us. That's his reason for rebelling. What's his strategy? It's really simple. Satan's strategy is to lie. He especially lies about the identity of God. That was the root temptation back in Genesis 3. And as has often been said, Genesis 3 isn't just revealing to us what happened at the beginning of the fall of our race. Genesis 3 reveals what always happens every time we choose to rebel against God. Genesis 3 is like game film. So the Lord is giving us game film on what the enemy of our souls does. And this is hilarious. Satan is a terrible coach. He's a horrible athlete. He has one play. He has one play. 
And he runs the same stinking play time and time again, over and over. Now you tell me, how often should a football team that has 2,000 years to prepare for the game that it's going to play in, and they know they're going to run up against one play, and they're going to see that same play every single time, every single down of that whole dang game, should that team be ready for that play? Should that team be victorious? You know, it's just going to run against one play for its entire game. Should that team be ready for that play? I would think so. Do we know how to stop it? Do we know how to stop the devil's play? So this is what the devil does. He runs the same play over and over and over again. And the play is this. God is not your father. He's your adversary. You can't trust him. He's not good. He's holding out on you. If he really loved you, he'd let you have that. He won't, therefore he's not. So he tries to deceive us into thinking that we can find happiness apart from our God. What's his goal? What's the enemy's goal for our life? It's really simple. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his goal for your life. Satan wants to destroy you. He hates you with a passion that you cannot imagine. Satan's goal is to be able to mock us for all of eternity by having fallen for his lies and chosen against God and suffer forever, therefore, the pains of hell. That's what he wants for you. And he's not to be trifled with. St. John Paul II used to say, have nothing to do with the dragon. Don't flirt with him. He wants to kill you. And worse, have nothing to do with the dragon. So what are the consequences of sin? This is especially, I think, at least me, where I miss it. <laughs> so oftentimes we say something like this. Well, the consequence of sin is that we're separated from God. We're separated from God. I don't know about you, but that doesn't do a whole lot for me sometimes. <laughs> I'm separated from God. Who cares? <laughs> Big whoop. <laughs> so what? <laughs> Being separated from God, that didn't do the least for me when I was growing up a lot of times. Who cares? The consequences of sin are not just that we're separated from God. The consequences of sin, here's what happened after the fall. We as a race, we sold ourselves into slavery to powers that we cannot compete against. Primarily two powers, sin, do we know the other one? And death. Sin and death. And these powers are both best written with capital letters. Sometimes we tend to think of sin as like something we either we do or we don't do, something we say or we don't say. That's true by all means. But before that, sin is a power. Sin is a kingdom. 
It's a dominion. That's why it's written with a capital. Let me show you. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 6. That we might no longer be enslaved to sin. That's best written with a capital S. Death no longer has dominion over him. Lordship. These are the words that Paul uses. Enslaved, dominion, lordship with regards to sin and to death. And to be honest, I think the power of sin and death, I think it's actually, it's pretty easy to prove. So I have a good friend that passed away not too long ago. And when I went to visit him at his bedside, I'm sure a lot of people have had this experience. I went to go visit him at his bedside and I saw him and I watched with him and I prayed with him. But it blew me away. Like I was utterly powerless to stop what was happening before my eyes. Countless numbers of us in this room, I'm sure, have had this experience. All of us are going to die. And there's nothing that any of us can do about it. You are going into the ground someday. As am I. That's because of the lordship of death. Which is a consequence of sin. That's a consequence of the fall. Now, I at least can say the same thing about sin as I can about death, at least from my own experience, and we can all be in this together. Raise your hand. Is there anybody in here that (laughs) you've done anything that you've hated doing, that you didn't want to do, that you knew you shouldn't do, but you did it anyway? Like (laughs) this morning? (laughs) On your way to work? (laughs) You ever wonder why? For I do not do the good I want. The evil I do not want is what I do. That's man or woman apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we are under the dominion. We are under the kingdom. We are under the lordship of this power. See that word power? There it is again. I can't get out of this. There's nothing that I can do to escape from sin and death. There's nothing that I can do or any of us can do on our own to break free from the power of sin. So here's the way that I found that the Lord tries to teach me about the consequences of the fall. And this is the most powerful modern image that I know how to relate the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve to my life. Something that all of us have been born into. This is a powerful modern image. You and I are in the hands of a trafficker. This is the most powerful way that I know how to pray about this. And I encourage you to honestly pray about this in a way where it becomes real to you. That you've been captured. There are more slaves today than there have been in the history of the world. You are in the hands of a trafficker. You are chained. And your life is one that is going to be used, abused, humiliated, degraded, and you cannot escape. 
That's our race. That's the bad news. And if we truly grasped it, the bad news is horrific. So what's God do in response to this? This will be the good news. <laughs> and thanks be to God, it is awesome news. <laughs> the grace that we want to ask for here as we pray about this in the next week is the grace of unshakable confidence. All right, so there's way too much to talk about with uh, God's response to our sin. I'm going to try and zero in on two things. We're going to zero in on the incarnation and on the passion. So a lot of times I think that we could use the person of Jesus, we could see him, if you will, as a crystal. When you have a crystal, every time you turn it, you can see its light reflecting its beauty think of like a beautiful diamond ring or something like that. A lot of us, that's how Jesus is. A lot of us, our image of Jesus is like, he's kind, and he is, praise God, and he's patient, and he is, praise God, and he's gentle, and Jesus is, praise God, and he's loving, and he's forgiving, and all those things are true. But here's the key to who Jesus is that a lot of times I know at least that I forget. Jesus is utterly inconquerable. He's invincible. Jesus is Lord. And we as Americans, <laughs> we don't have a way of really grasping what this word Lord means. That word is an absolutely revolutionary word when Paul uses it in the Roman Empire. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He reigns. This man that was crucified, he is Lord. He is the one that holds history in his hands. He is the only hope for a dying race. It is he to whom we owe final allegiance. So why did Jesus come? What's the purpose of the incarnation? Why was Jesus laying in those manger scenes that we put away not too long ago? I think we could see a biblical answer to this. And the biblical answer is a little bit clearer than anything I could use, so we'll, we'll look to the Bible. John simply tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. As he's getting ready to enter into his passion, Jesus tells us, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world, that's how Jesus describes the devil, the enemy, the ruler of this world. Now he is to be cast out. Perhaps most importantly in this passage that we can find in the Gospel of Matthew. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Well, who's the strong man? Satan. 
What's his house? This world. What are his goods? You and me. What has Jesus come to do? Bind him. The church sings the canticle of Zechariah every morning when she prays morning prayer during the liturgy of the hours. Anybody familiar with the canticle of Zechariah? He has come to his people and set them free. He would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us, to set us free from the hands of our enemies. Who is our enemy? It's not the person that has a different view than you. The enemy is sin and death and hell, Satan. From the hands of all who hate us. Who is it that hates us? The enemy. This is why he came. Let's go back to D-Day. We know why the Allies landed. They landed to fight. Do we know why Jesus landed? Why the one through whom the universe, which is, by the way, 46 billion light years across, was made? Why he chose to become flesh? He didn't come to tell stories. He didn't come to work miracles. He told stories and he worked miracles. Jesus came to fight. He came to fight for you. He came to fight for me. He came to rescue us from that which we cannot escape. That's why the gospel is good news. Just as this is the invasion of one kingdom by a stronger kingdom, so the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, God becoming man, this is the invasion of the kingdom of death, of sin, of hell, by another kingdom, a stronger kingdom, the kingdom of God. Those people came to liberate a continent that had become enslaved to a tyrant. God became flesh to liberate his creature that means the most to him. So how did he accomplish this? Let's look at the passion. So we see Jesus hanging on the cross. Look at Jesus, take him in, hanging on the cross. Is he the victim? Or is he the aggressor? Is he the hunted? Or is he the hunter? Is this the tragic, unfortunate end of a man's life that got cut down in its prime? Or was this the point? And if it was the point, why was this the point? I would argue that Jesus on the cross, that we use the word victim, and Jesus certainly is a victim. Jesus is the aggressor. Jesus isn't the hunted. He is doing the hunting. I have a friend who's a priest, another friend, not father. (laughs) 
who often speaks of Jesus as the ultimate ambush predator. This is awesome. The ultimate ambush predator. Have we heard of an ambush predator before? This is awesome. Okay, I get, to teach, I get to teach you something tonight. So an ambush predator, this is a creature that lies motionless and still, camouflaged within its surroundings. All with the purpose of doing what? Enticing its prey to get closer and closer. And when its prey comes close enough, it pounces. Jesus is the ambush predator. God is unbelievably creative. So what happens in the Passion? From the moment he is handed over in the Garden of Gethsemane onwards, God more and more and more and more camouflages himself. He disguises his divinity. He sweats blood. He allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be chained. Remember, this is God we are talking about. The one that made the universe. He allows himself to be stripped naked. He allows himself to be ripped to shreds through the scourging. He allows himself to be crowned with thorns. He allows himself to be nailed to a tree. He must have allowed himself to be nailed to a tree, right? How do you nail God to a tree? Does Hobby Lobby sell these nails? Where do you buy a nail that can hang God on a tree? The only way that God gets here is if he wants to be there. Why would he want to be there? So we understand the passion of Jesus in three ways, and usually we stress two different ways. So one of the ways that we hear about Jesus and the passion is that he's showing us how much God loves us. And that's true, and that moves some people, but it doesn't move other people. Sometimes we hear, Jesus is taking my place. He's atoning for my sin. He is becoming sin, as Paul would say. Now that's true too, but that moves fewer people, at least in my estimation. Sometimes we look at the crucifix, and we're like, why do you have to do that? I mean, I'm not that bad of a guy. I haven't killed anybody. It's kind of extreme, God, isn't it? Now, those are true. Those two ways are true. But the third way is what I want to focus on with you. This is the classical way. This is the patristic way. So that's theology language for saying this is the way that would have been taught and communicated to the first Christians in the life of the early church. So what was taught to them about who Jesus is, about why he came, about his passion and his death, about what he accomplishes through suffering, through rising from the dead? That's to say Jesus is going to war. He's fighting. And this is awesome. How is he doing it? He's doing it by deceiving the deceiver. So as the Lord camouflages his divinity, he's trying to pick a fight. Satan's not going to fight God. 
He knows that he will lose. He has no chance. And so the early church would often say that, isn't it fitting that the one who deceived our race at the very beginning of time should himself be deceived and in the process bring about his own destruction? It's almost like Satan stands before Jesus as he hangs on the cross and he says something along these lines. You know, son, you're rather remarkable. You've done extraordinary things. But I've seen miracles before. And you don't sin. But that woman over there at the foot of your cross, she don't sin either. Then I picture the devil looking at his watch and saying something along the lines of, but you know what? In a matter of minutes, you're mine. Because no one escapes death. And you are about to die. And guys, that is exactly what Jesus wanted to happen. It's as if he gets swallowed alive by death so that from the inside of death he can explode it. St. Ephraim the Syrian, who's one of the early fathers of the church, he said that the Lord goes in search of a chariot with which to ride into the underworld in order to liberate hell. The chariot is his flesh. God can't die, so he takes flesh which can die, so that he can get into the strong man's house and plunder. This episode of Let's Be Saints with Luke Doyle was brought to you by Catholic Radio Network. This talk and others like it can be found at thecatholicradionetwork.com.